Hello, everybody. This is a brand new podcast from the Stiletto Surgeon. And today I'm very excited to have the honor to interview Dr. Roxanne Guy. For the listeners who don't know her, she is a true female pioneer in plastic surgery. Her lifelong leadership has broken multiple gender barriers in both general and plastic surgery. She was the first graduating female at Southern Illinois University for both general and plastics. She later went on to become the first female president in 2007 of the American Society of Plastic Surgery, which is the largest plastic surgery specialty organization in the world. She has over 30 years of private practice experience, and not only is she a champion for females everywhere, but I know firsthand her patient care is truly exceptional as well. She is my mentor and who I want to be when I grow up, and I'm so excited she is willing to share her life with us today. Welcome from Melbourne, Florida, Dr. Guy. Hi, how are you doing? Happy to be here. <laughs> so great having you. I've wanted to talk to you on this platform for so long. <laughs> so let's start, Dr. Guy, if you wouldn't mind. Since you were the first woman in surgical training at SIU, tell me a little bit about that experience. Well, I went to medical school at SIU, and I think the biggest reason that I stayed there for general surgery was because I loved the place and because I was already a known entity. I had sort of proven myself with most of the faculty already. When I went to interview at other medical schools, it it really wasn't a good experience. Um, It was belittling and uh, one upmanship. And I thought, "I, I just can't deal with this. And I've got friends at SIU that now trust me as a woman to um, do the job. So I'm just going to stay there. And I'm really glad I did. It was a wonderful experience. Yeah, that's so nice to hear. I think even today on the interview trail, you still have those institutions where, you know, they're welcoming, you feel at home, and then usually that's where you end up. Um, And then God forbid you end up at one of those other places because that can be some tough training for a lot of years. That's right. I, I, you really have to follow your gut when you're doing the training or excuse me, the interviewing and, and going around the country. I, I did have one interviewer at one place who, who was male and really didn't know what to say to me. He was just having a hard time, you know, just conversing with me. And finally, when we got to the part where he asked you about your other um, interests, he said, well, well, what do you like to do? Do you like to sew? And I just started laughing <laughs> and he didn't think, I mean, he didn't even crack a smile like it wasn't funny. So I, you know, that wasn't going to work for me. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. And you know what, even today when I was um, interviewing for general surgery at one of my locations, I remember one of the surgeons interviewing me and he said, you know, I don't know how I feel about women in surgery. And I mean, my eyes were like, oh, this guy's kidding, you know what in this day and age and i and i was like what do you mean and you know thinking he's just joking around and he's gonna say oh i love it you know women are great no no he continued to say you know i will i just you know i make as much sandwiches as my wife and it just went south pretty quick and i was just taken aback by oh my gosh i can't believe this is happening what what kind of field is this like what's going on well, obviously, I ranked them last. <laughs> and that was compared to when I interviewed, that's been, what, 42 years. 77 just, is when I started my interviews. So, man. goodness, it should have changed by now. You would think, but I think we're still behind sometimes. 
unfortunately. Well, so, all right, so you loved your program and that experience was fantastic. What obstacles um, do you think, while you were in training, did you have to overcome? Were there any barriers related to the fact that you were a woman? Um, or was the program pretty uh, lenient toward you? Well, I, I don't think they were lenient. Um, one of the reasons I went to SIU School of Medicine is because it was a new medical school. I think I was part of the third or fourth graduating class. And everything was new and exciting. And most of the uh, physicians um, and most of the professors were very anxious to see the school succeed. Um, and we had faculty from the, um, the town that were not, they were associate professors, they weren't part of the university. And many of them were naysayers because they just hadn't been around female surgeons. So I did um, have some obstacles there, especially with one of the um, more elderly uh, general surgeons there, who then uh, later on turned out to be one of my best supporters. Um, the other thing is I had, I felt a real, um, a real problem with the nurses. It was as though um, they were not able to relate to me as a surgeon. And I don't know whether it was threatening or whether uh, it usurped their position as the female in the room, you know, as the scrub nurse or, or the um, technician. But uh, they they could be very, very cruel. And uh, one just had to meet that with cheerfulness or whatever you could do. So those were the biggest things. Um, there were always uh, patients who thought you were a nurse and you know, that's okay. You can forgive the patients much more than the professionals. Right. Um, but things like that, there was definitely some undermining from the other residents, but not a lot. As I said, at that place, which is was a wonderful um, learning experience, really was receptive to have everybody succeed for the, for the good of the new medical school. Right. It sounds like they were ahead of their time. I think they were. They also started completely different, um, a completely different way to learn in the medical school. They had us use, um, and I think this was revolutionary at the time, but they would bring in um, fake patients who would pretend that they had a certain disease, and that's the people on whom we would do our physical exams. And so we had all sorts of mock um, diseases that we needed to diagnose in that way, sort of real time with a real person. It was it was kind of revolutionary. Yeah, no, that is it's that's the status quo now. So they it sounds like they must have started that because, yeah, I, I think everybody I know from medical school practiced with um, fake patients or actors. Um, we did exams on actors. I mean, everything, you name it, from pap smears to that's right. That's, yeah. What about, and I, did you have some virtual surgery, you know, in a lab, that sort of thing? We didn't have that yet, but I know there are a lot of labs with, um, with plastic dummies that you can do your laparoscopy on and train for different things. Oh yeah. We had Simman. Simman. And then in general surgery, we had the laparoscopic trainer. We had the endoscopic trainer doing um, upper and lower endoscopies. Yeah, that, that's become huge. Um, the only thing we had was, you know, Recessa Annie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I still think there's no substitute than an actual human patient 
but it's really good, especially for the laparoscopic skills. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I didn't grow up in general surgery learning the laparoscopic stuff, mm -hmm. so I, I never did that as a general surgeon, and I think it's probably a wonderful skill to develop. Yeah, it's good. I think now that I'm in plastics, it's something actually that has I've been able to translate. Um, you know, I don't do much laparoscopic uh, surgery anymore, maybe endoscopic brow, but um, the some of the similarities and looking at a screen and, and being able to kind of have that 3D um, visualization and hands-on, I, I think really helps. So there's no substitute for general surgery first. In all five years. All five years. Including being... Um being chief resident, which um, I think that's an invaluable experience. You are sort of the leader of the other surgeons and uh, you have to take control. And, and I think it's, it is an invaluable experience. What did you think? I think it was amazing. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I learned social skills. I learned, um, you know, leadership skills. I learned how to grow a thick skin. I learned how to study, um, in a short amount of time because you don't get much time. That's right. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, I, and, and then the people you run into, your mentors, the surgeons, you know, they all kind of shape you and help you grow in those 20s um, where you're still sort of trying to figure out who you are. That's so, right. So Either it's, in it's a negative way or in a positive way. Right. It's right. all good experience. Right. And, you know, I, I have, of course, I have incredible fond memories, but of, there are the days that are long and hard and cruel um, and you just try to forget them and try to make sure that you don't emulate that for the future. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So did you have any female mentors when you were going through? No, I really didn't. Um, <sighs> and, but, the, but you know, in, in plastic surgery, of course, my mentor was wonderful and, and very open and uh, was a fabulous teacher. And, you know, I... It's not that I didn't want a female mentor. That would have been really, really nice. But I got taught very, very well. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, it's one of those give and takes. If you work real hard and you show an interest and uh, you prove that you can be trusted in caring for the patients uh, in a you know very mindful way, then you get rewarded with getting to do cases and they, you know, share their knowledge with you. If you are lax in that, then they will withhold knowledge. And um, so, so you just had to work hard. That's all there was to it. Yeah. And I've heard that time and time again. I think that's the true staple to resident training is work hard and it will be given back to you in volumes. That's right. So that's for sure. Would that be your advice for residents? <laughs> Go ahead. Don't take it personally or, or grow a thick skin. That is for females is absolutely paramount um and then well i don't know what the first is probably the first is work hard just work hard just pay attention to what you need to do and and maybe then in so doing you won't be bothered by some of the little slights so so much just just you're too busy to do that just move you forward are. yeah yeah that's just it the busier i got the less i cared about the small stuff and, you know, you come in that first year and you're having problems with the nurses on the floor, you're having problems with the scrub techs in the OR, you know, you're compared to your male counterparts, which only have th three different types. They're going to be excellent. They're going to be mediocre. They're going to be awful. But you have names. You're either the smart one. You're either the, the silly one. 
you know, so it's just tough. You're being compared, but you learn that quit pretty quick to not care. Yes, you have to. Well, I really did want to go into academic medicine. I thought it would be fun to be a teacher and so forth. But honestly, there were not a lot of programs that were particularly receptive to, you know, to take me. Uh, mm -hmm. I interviewed with some and, uh, you know, the interviews would be good, but uh, I certainly wasn't top on their list. Um, and also I had gotten married and my husband was from Florida and grew up in Florida and he really wanted to come back to Florida and you know as an Illinois girl who doesn't want to live in Florida right. so um, so after sort of deciding the academic route really wasn't going to work for me and honestly I just don't think the time was right to tell you the truth for women um, so uh, we went into private practice we just came down here and started our practice in, an, in a relatively small community Right. And you were you the first female plastic surgeon in Melbourne? Yes. Yes. Wow. And at that time, there were courses through, um, gosh, they were through the AMA on how to start your practice. And, you know, we started with that one right system for, um, for the checks and for billing and everything was on paper. And uh, so we just started with that stuff, like, like two dumb kids <laughs> and just hung out the, the shingle. Um, and it just so happened that there was a need. So I got busy really, really quickly. And of course it was mostly ER and trauma, uh, mm -hmm. but that's okay. And um, so it, getting busy for me was not difficult at all because I came to an area that probably needed another plastic surgeon. And I think it's probably a lot different for some of the people coming up now. I think it's probably more of a challenge to figure out where to go. Yeah, now, did you have any help from any Buddy in the community, anybody that you could lean on for advice, um, help you in the OR, difficult cases? You know, not really. <laughs> if I had a, if I had a problem, I would usually call you know one of my mentors from Illinois, um, and read you know hit the books. And uh, it was one of, it was a case of don't let them see you sweat because right. there were a lot of naysayers in the community as well. And um, so I just you know powered through it. Would it have been nice to have somebody with whom to collaborate? Oh, heck yes. But um, but again, I was just busy and I just wanted to do well so badly that I just, again, powered through it. Yeah. I think that that's the most nerve wracking thing for me. Thinking about going to private practice is, well, what do I do if and I can't figure it out? And who do I talk to? And, you know, being in fellowship now where you always have somebody um it's just kind of i do know though you know i have had calls um from other surgeons now that that the younger surgeons while they were in the operating room and they were at a loss and uh, would ask me questions and i have absolutely no problem with that so i guess one bit of advice is if you go into an area, you really need to, to befriend the other plastic surgeons and the other doctors as much as possible. And, uh, you know, then they will I, I hopefully help you with some advice. Um, you know, they're going to feel threatened if you're going into private practice and you're going to the same place that they 
you know, reside in because you will be competition. Um, so you have to find a way to um, be, have friendly competition and um, collaborate and you may, maybe do journal clubs together or something like that where you'd have a shared interest in, in learning about plastic surgery. And then um, hopefully you would reach a, a, a point where you could you know, call on them if you had an issue. And then yeah. you can always call back to your residency. I'm sure those poor people yeah. get calls all the <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Speed dial to my program director. <laughs> absolutely. You know, um, what advice looking back would be the most important advice for starting a private practice for both male and female plastic surgeons? Wow, that's hard. Um, I, I think you should get as much help as you possibly can. I think that once you start a practice it's, it, and, you, it, and you get established, it's such a leviathan effort that you really need to be sure that you're going to like the place. Um, not only the, the people in the community, um, the other physicians, but also the, the, the area geographically. Uh, because it's very difficult to pick up and move and leave a practice otherwise. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend renting? I Oh, I recommend, I recommend doing things as cheaply as you can. Renting, um, don't go all crazy. If you're going to spend money, spend it on marketing, uh, but not on necessarily on a, buying a big flashy office or something like that. Start small. Try to keep your overhead really, really low. Uh, until you really start to have uh, an idea of what your budget's going to be and what you can um, spend money on. And it's especially true because you're going to have all these reps that come and want to sell you these inordinately expensive machines uh, that, you know, will really set you back. So you have to be very careful about those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, try to get advice if you want to buy a machine like that or laser or a skin tightening thing or radio frequency, um, you know, go online or, or ask your fellow surgeons who have those if this is a good investment and really do your do your homework. But don't buy that right out of the gate, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, that's good advice. I mean, I don't even know if I'd be able to afford that right out of the gate anyways. Exactly. exactly. And they'll let you know they'd let you lease them and all sorts of things like that. But you really have to look at, um, you know what, they'll show you these um, pro formas that make it sound like you're going to see eight of these patients a day. Well, you're not going to. And then right. they base, this is see how much money you can make. They base that on a pro forma that is not reality. So you just have to uh, step back and really analyze it, regardless of how exciting it might seem. Right. What I noticed at the ASPS meeting this year, you know, they'll they'll give you kind of a price of what they think you should charge the patient, let's say for a laser treat. But they don't take into consideration what area you're in ge geographically. So what somebody might be willing to spend in Melbourne, Florida might be different than what somebody's willing to be spend in New York City. That's exactly right. And then are there other machines in the area? Are they going to undermine your fee? Um so you, yeah, you have to, you have to study all of that before you go with one of those big ticket items, uh, or really anything for your practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there anything you wish you had done differently when you were setting up your practice? Um, I, I think we started slowly and, um, we, well, the thing about starting the practice is 
you can make a plan. You know, let's say they all tell, tell you to make a five-year plan or something like that. So you make a plan and, um, and it works well, but then, you know, life changes things. For example, um, we got busy very, very quickly. Um, we were, you know, insurance was good at that time. Uh, even blunt trauma play, paid well at that time. And um, so we were able to um, build a building uh, and we built a huge building because our five-year plan was to bring on other plastic surgeons to this area and to have an office, to have a couple of office operating rooms and so forth. I mean, it was like big dream. And we did that, and uh, I ultimately got a couple of partners, and that worked out very, very well. Um, but then uh, later, the partners left, and for various different reasons. And then I was left with this big building with a large overhead. Um, and so I, I, you know, it's great to have big plans, and you know, I think you should reach for the stars, but you also need to be mindful of of what's going to happen if the economy changes, and uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, and that's hard. It's like, how do you prepare for that? Yeah, you want to have a positive, mm -hmm. uh, you want to feel positive about the future, but you know, <laughs> things do happen. You have to remember that there are going to be economic um, swings, and you're going to have to be able to weather those. Absolutely. And with that, I guess, how would you say your practice has changed from then to now? Well, gee, it's it's like it's a constant change. You know, first I, it, I was by myself, then we built a building and I had a baby and I got a partner all in the same year. <laughs> and uh, then we got another partner a couple of years after that. And, uh, and, and everything was great for about 10 years. And then one of the partners left, the other one left and got married. Um, and then I was really getting interested in the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. I had been doing things on committees uh, since since residency, um, but I did have to change my practice ultimately from doing quote unquote everything, taking call, doing trauma, doing reconstruction, and I had to um, figure out a way that I could sustain my practice while I was gone, you know, for all these committee meetings and that sort of thing. And it just so happened that that was the onset of sort of non-invasive uh, treatments in plastic surgery, like injectables, uh, laser, Botox, all that sort of stuff. And uh, I decided to bring on an ARNP and I did it in way before I was president of the ASPS and trained her for a couple of years to make sure that I felt comfortable with her. And um, so that worked and then, you know, and then somebody else will hire, will, will lure them away for extra money or more money. So right. then I lost her. So then I trained mm. another one and then I lost her for the same reason. And uh, and ultimately, you know, then I stopped doing as much trauma and then I ultimately I stopped reconstruction and then later I stopped doing insurance. And now, you know, at, at in my golden years, I'm just doing elective cosmetic stuff. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. One is it, the pure physicality of surgery, standing all day, 
um, yeah. up early, you know, burning the midnight oil, worrying about patients and so forth. And uh, it's it's just harder. It's harder to do it now. Um, you know, you got aches and pains and back and feet and all that sort of thing. And and when I was young, I didn't even think about that. You know, you're you're bulletproof. This is no problem. And I don't think we learned how good posture while we were operating. We didn't learn good body mechanics. I think they're teaching all that stuff now, aren't they? Right. It's a little better. It is. So yes, but I mean it's it's nothing but change. Uh, it you set on a course and then you then you just go with the changes because there's you know that, that's the one true uh, that's the one true thing you know is going to happen. Things will will change. It really sounds like your one year plan, your five year plan, your ten year plan. They can all be different, and there's fact factors you need to just consider along the way and sort of go with the changes be like water you can't be paranoid you have to live life you have to do Mm -hmm. you know the best you can with the information at hand i think as long as you really think about it and um think about the pros and cons and 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 then also follow your heart um and really really study it then i think you know then you have to just say okay i did this and now we'll see we'll see what happens so do you think you should kind of coming out of residency you think stay wide, do as many surgeries and procedures as you can, or do you think you should try to find a niche early? Well, that's hard to say. I I would say it kind of depends on what offers, you know, you get. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very nice to, I would think, I have never done this, but I would think it would be nice to, let's just give an example. Maybe there's a group of four or five plastic surgeons and they need somebody who does breast reconstruction or something like that. And uh, so you're sort of the breast reconstruction person. Uh, I, I don't think you will want to continue to do that forever and ever. If you interview with those people, you have to make sure that there's an opportunity to expand your practice into whatever the case may be. Uh, if you mm-hmm. do hand or cosmetic or those sorts of things. I do think you'd get tired of it, frankly, after a while. I, I think just doing cosmetic now, I kind of miss some of the excitement of the trauma and some of the other challenges of the reconstructive cases. I don't miss rounding at the hospital. I don't miss going in in the middle of the night. But it's just a skill set that is rapidly lost if you don't use it. Right. So don't pigeonhole yourself. Well, I wouldn't. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you came up with this great opportunity and you ended up loving it um, and, and it, it's something that you really like to do, well, then that's probably okay for you. Just be mindful that, you know, is this going to sustain me? Because most of us as surgeons, we, you know, we get bored easy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we need stimulation. Absolutely. We need to move right. and we need stimulation. So you, you want to, you want to, you know, be mindful of that. Know yourself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, I can't focus on something for longer than <laughs> those 12 hour cases. I'm go stir crazy. So those aren't for me. <laughs> Or, I mean, you know, if if it's your case and it takes a long time and you're out in private practice, that's, you know, that's a different deal. But, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So do you think being a female plastic surgeon, being in private practice offers your patients something they may not get from your male colleagues? Well, you can never breathe this to your male colleagues because they will, um, 
counter it. But I hear my patients say all the time, oh, I'm so glad there's a woman plastic surgeon. I'm so glad you can really get it. And, you know, I, I think there are certain traits that um, they feel that you can relate to. And, um, and I think that's true. Uh, sometimes the, the negative side of that is they will want to spend too much time with you uh, when, during your business, busy day and, um, and tell you way more than you really <laughs> need to know in order right. to do their surgery. And, you know, I certainly have developed a lot of friendships with my patients. Um, but, but you do have to be careful because they will suck you dry if, you're, if, you, uh, if you let them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think from just my own perspective, you know, I I want to see just in physicians in general. I mean, I want to go to a female and talk about female problems. Um, it just seems easier, you know, at least somebody that understands it, gets the anatomy, gets the physiology, is like-minded. You know, you can joke about things you probably necessarily couldn't joke about with a, a male surgeon or or a physician. So I do. I think it's easier. I don't necessarily always think it's better, you know, but I do think there is something that you can offer your patients, your female patients. I do think that they sometimes ask more of us than they would probably dare ask um, a male physician um, in terms of, you know, going the extra mile, um, doing quote unquote favors, which, um, you know, you really should never do a favor for a patient. You should treat all patients, um, pretty much the same in terms of the professional professionalism that you use. It's, you can't get too familiar. I think that's a dangerous uh, position. Yeah. Maintaining that professional barrier. Yeah. Yeah. Then I think the scrutiny of a female, surgeon is also higher than it is for male surgeon there's less room for error so you know if you make a mistake and your male counterpart makes the same mistake would you say it would be treated fairly i don't know yeah i i do know that um i i hear all the time about um physicians not necessarily surgeons um brushing off concerns uh male physicians as a female, if you brush off a concern, uh, that person is really going to badmouth you. Yes. And uh, so so you do have to spend the requisite time and maintain that professional barrier. And I think that every single day that is still, you know, a challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a challenge for everybody. Yeah, Just it probably is. Having the time to actually spend and listen to each patient. I mean, it's harder and harder now. It is. I And I'm struck by patients that come in. And of course, if, if you want to do surgery on them, you want to make sure that they're healthy. So you ask them about their their uh, general doctor and, you know, have you gotten labs? Has everything been good? Is your general health good? And, and um, oftentimes I'll hear a tale of, um, especially, you know, around the menopausal years or something like that, where they, they're told, oh, this is all in your head. This is all in your head. When mm. they may, in fact, end up having a, um, having a really bad disease. So right. I think that since medicine, you know, is, is trying to squeeze every last minute out of every single doctor, uh, I, don't, I think that we're not quite as thorough as we should be. And to the patient's detriment, I hope that that can turn around. I don't see it turning around, but I certainly hope that yeah. it can. Yeah, I think it will, like everything. Um, 
you know, I think it just is going to take a big change and it's got to start with the, the doctor. Yeah. And maybe it'll start with the women doctors. Yeah. Because I, I think that it has been proven that we spend more time with our patients. Mm-hmm. We yeah. make less money and we spend more time with our patients. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we work 18 hour days, make less money, spend more time with the patients. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, but in the it's end, I, you know, I think that's good in the end. And, and hopefully that will, you know, as physician, as uh, females become 50% of the uh, physician workforce, then I think that will probably improve. Yeah, I hope so. I think we need more women in leadership positions um, than we currently have in order to start making those changes. That's right. It's It's hard to, like, fight from below. Oh, that's right. But we're getting there. Slowly but surely. That's it's, that's right. Not much is changing very quickly, but it's a crawl. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crawl. So, Dr. Guy, you had mentioned that you had your first child when you were growing your practice and gained a partner. Um, how did you learn to have a work-life balance? Yeah, that's completely difficult. Very difficult. I don't think I did a very good job of it, frankly. Um but uh, I was blessed to have a husband who helped immensely. Um, he, he helped in the practice. He helped with uh, uh, our son. And uh, without him, there, I, there was no way I could do any of this. Um, so I think women should, should hire, get, procure as much help as they possibly can, whether it be a nanny, whether it be... Um, you know, uh, relatives, uh, hire somebody and not necessarily to do all the child work because I think the kids need their mom, uh, regardless mm-hmm. of what, you know, uh, other, other books have said over the years. Um, and so hire the other stuff out, you know, you don't have to cook, you don't have to clean, you don't have to do a lot of stuff. Um, but t- whatever time you can meet out, spend it with your, with your children and with your family and not just your child, but you know, your husband and so forth. Um, and let the other stuff go. Yeah. I've actually, one of the first female medical professionals I ever interviewed with, I remember she told me outsource. She said, you can do whatever you want. And she asked me what I want to do. I said, I want to be a surgeon. And, uh, she said, huh, okay, well, you're going to have to outsource. (laughs) She was a family practitioner, and uh, I remember that till this day. Um, you know, she said, "There's no amount of money that will replace the time that you miss with your kids." She said, "Just pay for it. You're gonna make money. Just pay for it." Mm-hmm. And that's stuck to this day. I don't have any money, but I'm working <laughs> on it. <laughs> and that's okay. That, you know, that's really okay. I think. Uh... You know, it, it all, it'll all work out in the end. And then there's just those precious years between zero and five that you want to spend as much time as you can. Then as they start going to school, maybe not quite so intense, but, um, and then before you know it, boom, they're out of the house. So you've got to enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly enjoyable. I mean, just watching my son grow up so far has been incredible. So but it's hard, but it's incredible. So you don't want to miss it. You know, I, I think on that subject, a lot of people have told me as I've kind of progressed along the years and said, oh, I want to do private practice. And a, a lot, I wouldn't say everyone, but a, a lot of people have said, oh, you, you really shouldn't do that. You know, you're never going to see your family. You're not going to have a balance. Um, your kids, your husband, everybody's going to suffer. 
And what do you think about this? Because obviously you did it, you've done it well, you know. Oh, I think it, it, it really depends on um, how you structure your practice. Um, I think that if you can, if you can structure, you know, you can name your hours um, and you have the uh, ability to, you know, take certain days off or afternoons or whatever, and maybe you won't make as much as somebody who works, you know, 15 hour days. Uh, and of course, you'll probably have to take some call and that's going to disrupt that schedule. But, but you just have to carve out that time right from the get go. Um, and because there's going to be plenty of things that's, that are going to disrupt that. If you don't carve up, out a little bit of extra here and there, then, then you'll really be um, exhausted. You know, if you, if you could possibly go in with other people that are like-minded and you like and you get along with and you can collaborate with and you can share the call and the duties and the expenses with, with I think that would be wonderful. Uh, or bring on uh, another um, surgeon to help you. And that's always hard because you never truly know how personalities are going to mend. But I, I think you just have to be open to it, you know, and... and um, again get as much help as you can yeah i can do it <laughs> you know I, I certainly good to have physician extenders and that sort of thing they're expensive um mm -hmm. they tend not to necessarily be loyal it depends you know a lot of times it's driven by money um but uh you know you have to be decide whether that's something that you want to get into sooner rather than later um and and from, you know, it's all that uh, risk versus benefit. I think it's a lot to think about, but I love the aspect of being able to make my own hours, set how I want to treat my patients, control how I want to operate. I think there's a lot to be said about that autonomy. Oh, I think there is too. Although, you know, I, I, statistically, more people are being hired by the hospital, hospitals um, or they're um, going into large conglomerates. Um, in general, in my area, I don't think they're particularly happy, though. Right. That's what it seems like. It seems like a lot of academic practitioners now or, or hospital-based practitioners are, are leaving because they can't do it anymore. The pressures are too high, and they're not having those bonds with the patients that drove them into medicine. And, and as you said, the, the hospital or whoever the employee is, they, they call the shots. So if all of a sudden mm -hmm. your favorite nurse that you've had with you for 12 years in the clinic, if they, she's got too much seniority and makes too much money and they want to, you know, get, get her out of there, they'll find a way to do that. And that could be extraordinarily um, disruptive. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't, I wouldn't be able to handle that. I don't think. <laughs> well, as surgeons, we like to have control. Um, yeah. That's true. And with that control, there are going to be a, a lot of other headaches. Um, you know, what? All, there's going to be staff headaches. There's going to be building headaches. There are going to be headaches with uh, equipment and those sorts of things. Uh, but again, get help, you know, uh, outsource. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. absolutely. All right. So having been through all you have until now, if you were to decide what career to pursue, would you have done anything differently? Boy, I don't think so. I mean, this career um, has been wonderful. It's not boring. Uh, it's been fun. Uh, I, it, it's creative and yet scientific. Um, 
I just really, it's been a good ride. I've got to say that. And, and at each step uh, in the decision-making tree, something was calling me to do surgery. I went to a medical school that was actually there. Um, they were, SIU was um, mandated by the state of Illinois to produce more physicians, general practitioners for downstate Illinois. Uh, you know, most of the doctors would go to Chicago and so forth. And so that was the mandate. So when going to medical school initially, you know, we were all going to be general practitioners. Right. Uh, and then going through the different um, the different rotations, I just I couldn't get the surgery out of my mind, regardless of five more years of residency, you know. And then I couldn't get plastic surgery out of my mind, regardless of two more years of residency. So, um so there, there are things that, that call you <laughs> in your life, and I think you have to listen to them. It, it can't just all be, you know, pragmatic or this would be the, quote, smart thing to do. Um, you never know what the smart thing to do is uh, because uh, there are so many changes in life. So I think, um, you know, with, with obviously you have to be a, you have to think about it, but you should follow your heart. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't do anything else. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, knew, to do. I knew that from the beginning when I first met you, which is wonderful. And yeah. by golly, you, you have stuck to your guns, which is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of hurdles, but it's been fun. And it's all been a great learning experience and has changed the person I am today. And I'm sure in five years, I'll be a different person. And I thank my lucky stars every day because I'm finally doing what I love and I'm almost there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then you'll have another place to go. You know, there will exactly. always be hurdles. But you, one thing that's always been great about you is your super, super positive ad attitude. And it, that becomes infectious. So, um, you know, you can't fail and other people think you can't fail either. So um, it's just refreshing. Well, thank you, Dr. Guy. You're always such an inspiration to me. And I am so lucky to have shared in your advice and knowledge today. Um, I've learned so much from you. So thank you so much. Oh, it's been great fun. Thank you. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up today. And I just want to thank everyone um, for downloading and listening to this podcast. Please continue to follow the Stiletto Surgeon on iTunes and Stitcher for more important and fun discussions. You can follow me on Instagram at the Stiletto Surgeon or at stilettosurgeon.com to follow updates and blog posts. Um, you can also email me, sp at porousplasticsurgery.com, for questions and comments, and like us on Facebook. Until next time, have a great week, and thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Dr. Guy.